part of my garden that's covered in brambles. And brambles are fucking awful to deal with. So I've been like shredding them bit by bit. So while you've been doing your calendar, I've been like cutting up bramble bushes. And I'm gradually getting there, you know? It's like 80%, oh. 80% done now. But it's like, I don't know. I don't know, it's like about 40 square meters of bramble bush. Wow. Which is fucking huge, basically. Okay. Yeah. But it's, is it like a weed or something? or? Uh, well, I mean, I count it as a weed, but, you know, I, there's politics. One man's weed is other, other weeds, man's. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, <laughs> And but, do you uh, hack through it or are you, uh, you're just cutting? I'm just cutting because, it, yeah, if you hack through it, it's kind of like it, it just, it, yeah, it's, it's not really, it's not that kind of plant that you can just hack through. Oh, that sounds more fun, but it's very spiky. Yeah, yeah, that would be more fun. I agree. You know, but then you you have to be careful because then you have to like dry it out. You have to dry it out. It's very uh, it spreads very easy in the garden. So you have to dry it out. Then you have to either burn it or give it away. Uh, give it to the to the uh, waste area. Um, but so you can't put it under compost. You know, because it's too. It will just grow in there. It's just, oh wow! It's I think I think up. we should we should welcome Adrian to the gardening podcast. <laughs> welcome, welcome yeah. to European gardening podcast, Adrian. <laughs> so please go on. How do we get rid of bramble bushes? Uh, well, the thing is, you have to cut them down. Then you have to then you have to dig the fucking roots out, which are, which are close as well, because you know they don't come out easily, and then they still grow back. Yeah, you know, fucking nightmare. Basically, it's you know, in terms of like a life's work, these bramble bushes are just fucking life's work. So, so I can mark like three weeks of your life I, cutting bramble. I'll be bushes. lucky if it's three weeks. You know, I think that, that would be it. Would be more than that. Well, it's a satisfying thing to do. I think then you have like a nice garden without bramble bushes. Eventually, it will be quite nice. Yeah. But I think it's I've still got another week or two left to fully clear it and then dig everything out and oh my god yeah but you know it does feel a bit like progress is being made you know which is I don't know sometimes I feel to myself like is destruction creativity I guess that's really my philosophical thought you know because <laughs> I'm destroying a living thing this bramble bush. And hopefully but, I'm going to create a little orchard there so there will be more living things, you know, that I can eat. Well, you already killed one living thing. Oh, yeah? Mm. Oh, yeah. Apparently, yeah. 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 Apparently you're yeah. racist against bramble bushes. Several dozen <laughs> things. Several dozen <laughs> living things, you know. <laughs> it's it's whatever you deem to be worthy of living. <laughs> racist against you bramble know? bushes. That's a good way of putting it, yeah. I'm bramble bushist. <laughs> But Adrian, so anyway, I think we, I, I started recording anyway, because, you know, this is, uh, this is pure gold. I think this is what our <laughs> audience is craving for, how to get rid of bramble bushes from their gardens and, you know, raise uh, infinite wisdom, mm. uh, re removing the roots and whatnot. <laughs> Welcome to Deaf and Adrian. I apologize for you have to go through all this uh, <laughs> shitty bramble bush discussion. Thanks for having me. <laughs> So, oh, um, yeah, we did already. Fuck. <laughs> Why <Okay>. not? <laughs> Why not? Well, maybe it's a good idea to cut this out. Doesn't <laughs> matter. Okay. Yeah. Carry on. <laughs> at, at this at this point, I think we are we are you know 
uh, we are on brand for this kind of shit now. <laughs> like rambling on and not letting the guest talk at all, as brambling you can see, Adrian. Yeah. Brambling on, exactly. Yeah, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a brambling episode. So, Adrian, yeah, this is definitely some, I think this is a 78 already. Wow. Uh, we're, we're, we're getting, there, there goes my 78 weeks of uh, uh, life, you know, working on DEFN. But awesome to have you, Adrian. Welcome to welcome to the podcast. Yeah, good to be here. Nice. Yeah. So you are based in um, San Francisco or somewhere nearby. Yeah, right I'm now. in uh, Sacramento, so about two hours away. Is that the, okay. the the official capital of California? Yeah, it is. Hmm. See? Bit of geography okay. there, Vijay. Well, uh, it's not like I care about US geography <laughs> that much, but um, I mean, I, I'm not taking any exams on US geography, but... Uh, yeah, it, not bad. Probably probably you need to know it if you want to get US citizenship or something, right? If you are an immigrant, then you might need to know all the state capitals and whatever. Yeah, I don't know. If you're here, they don't they don't care if you know it or not. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> but, but isn't it one of these so, weird things though? Like it's one of these like things like Canberra is the capital of Australia, which is just total bullshit. You know. Hmm. Uh, but it's like an administrative <laughs> thing, isn't it? Because obviously you've got Los Angeles and you've got San Francisco. Uh mm-hmm. fucking Sacramento. You know, what the hell? Why the hell is Sacramento <laughs> the, Cal- the California That's... capital, Adrian? I want you to justify it now. <laughs> well, I think it's because it was the end of the Transcontinental Railroad when it was first built. Right. So if you're taking the uh, train across the country in the 1800s, yeah. you would end up at Sacramento. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. But it, it's kind of a running theme in different places, right? Like in Netherlands, Amsterdam is not the capital, but well, at least the seat of the government is is in The Hague. And then... Amsterdam is like commercial capital sort of thingy. In in a lot of places, you know, maybe it's a historical reason usually. Well, maybe it's I a think. bit different in Sacramento because it sounds like because like things like Canberra and Brasilia, they're kind of made up to kind of diffuse mm. the power of these bigger cities, actually. Whereas mm-hmm. it sounds like Sacramento was like it was the capital, but then these other cities mm. have grown to kind of uh kind of which, which we say they've kind of overshadowed them, overshadowed it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's one of those, uh, what is it, Myanmar? They, they started building a completely new capital with, uh, I don't know, 18 lane roads and everything that nobody lives there. So it's all like empty wasteland sort of thingy. So Brasilia oh, wow. is also in something that is just made up or, uh, well, not made up, but <laughs> I mean. Yeah, it was like architected. Specifically, it was yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. 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 Hmm. Yeah. But hey, now we know, you know, why Sacramento is uh, uh, well, is the capital of. Uh, well, hopefully that's right. I don't actually. I'm not uh, from here, so that oh, could okay. also just be made up. <laughs> you, you you just made up a fact then and there. I think that's that's awesome. All right. Okay. So I think somebody should go to Wikipedia and then just edit and then just add this one. How did you get to Sacramento then, Adrian? If you're not from there. I mean, well, don't I wasn't... say the railroad, you know. It's like, <laughs> nobody in America I... goes on a railroad, as far as I know. <laughs> yeah, I took Amtrak, and now I'm here. So yeah, okay. <laughs> it was the end of the but... line, so you just got off and I could just understood. Yeah, they now. make you get off, so yeah. <laughs> it wasn't my fault. <laughs> so I was in San Francisco for 10 years, and then when the pandemic, during the pandemic, I moved to be closer to family. And I have a sister here in Sacramento, so... right. 
that's kind of where I've uh, ended up. But is it similar to the, because you know you keep hearing San Francisco with all the tech companies there, right? I mean, is yeah. is Sacramento kind of similar in in terms of the tech scene, or is it uh, a bit like less tech scene around Sacramento? Yeah, there's definitely less of a tech scene. Although mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of uh, there were a lot of people that moved to San Francisco, and then during the pandemic, it's like okay, I've got a tiny apartment and I can't leave, and everything's mm-hmm. closed. Um, you know, it'd be nice to have a yard and some more space. So yeah. there's a lot of uh, tech, I think, kind of moving to other cities like San Diego, Portland, Sacramento, mm. Austin. Okay. So w- what are you doing there? I mean, how did you, uh, well, because this is Closure Podcast, obviously it's not Bramble Bush ed- editing podcast. Uh, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> We'll, we'll we'll get back to you know the, the main topic of bramble bush soon enough good 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 <laughs> yes so i know that's exactly what everybody is looking up to you know oh, when is the next episode coming on how to, how to i don't know how to do with my bramble bushes i'll send you know, some I need photos to to as well don't worry yeah <laughs> so so anyway, what is anyway. your journey <laughs> yeah what's your journey to sacramento <laughs> <laughs> we've covered that one already yeah. Yeah, yeah we covered that one but we assume that you know this is closure podcast so we're going to focus on closure journey not not the other stuff so mm-hmm. so good good segue how, how did you a professional isn't he oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> this is 78th episode now yeah. so <laughs> i learned a thing or two <laughs> so tell, tell us about your your programming journey and how did you end up doing closure in sacramento yeah so i mean i've been I started programming kind of, uh, I think in middle school and high school, just, um, you know, programming on the T83 calculator. And then in high school, um, I just wanted to, uh, I thought it would be cool to learn how to program. And so like my brother had a friend who liked Java. So I just Googled Java and they had these <laughs> tutorials online and you just, you can just go through them. And that's kind of my first, that's kind of how I learned to program. Eventually, I went to school and uh, got a degree. Um, my degree was actually in computer engineering because I thought I wanted to do more hardware or electrical engineering. Um, it wasn't until my last semester where I was like, oh, I like all the programming stuff more. Um, mm. But I didn't want to spend extra time at school. So um, I was in electrical engineering. I switched it to computer engineering just so I could take more computer science classes. But mm. um, yeah, it was an interesting I actually value that part of my education just because a lot of computer science, you uh, you get a slightly different programming. I mean, at that time, it was a lot of object-oriented stuff, but uh, getting a lot of the, in computer engineering, you do a lot of like learning about the hardware, the CPU, lower level stuff. And that mm-hmm. has been really valuable as I've kind of, um, over the years, and then just programming a lot, you pick up a lot of the other computer science concepts about how to organize and structure code. So, so Java was your first programming language then? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. But so how did you, did after finishing your studies, did you work in Java professionally or did you start learning some other things? And how did, how did you end up in Clojure? Right. So um, when I graduated, I went to work for a startup in San Francisco and they were using Python. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to another startup that was doing mobile games. So that was like Objective-C, C++, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit of Java. And while I was at that company, um, 
I wanted to learn closure because it was a, you know, I'd read all the Paul Graham essays about um, Lisp. And mm -hmm. so I was just, you know, I wanted to learn it because it, you know, they, uh, I wanted to learn more about Lisps and macros and, you know, the enlightenment that comes from that, which is mm -hmm. kind of the selling point. But I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say that's the truth, but I'd say, you know, I, that's when I started to learn closure and yeah, so but, I've been using closure ever since. So that was around 2013. Oh, wow. So because the, um, did Lisp sound like, as you said, you know, all the power that comes because you learn Lisp sort of thing, you know, and then that, that is the general vibe, right? Lisp is the ultimate, you know, uh, power weapon that you can have to build anything you like uh, sort of thingy. Uh, especially if you follow, you know, Paul Graham's, uh, you know, uh, essays and everything and his own Lisp implementation and everything. But uh, but it seems like you didn't believe in the message or at least in the beginning you you were okay. But now <laughs> don't you feel like, well, it's okay, but it is not that, that as, you know, it's too much marketing around Lisp. <laughs> yeah, well, like, I mean, the... Uh... One of the things that I think is unfortunate is I think you can't, like, I think uh, I learned a lot from all the languages I worked with. So, I, I mean, I worked with uh, Java. I did some stuff in PHP. I did stuff in Python, uh, Objective-C. And every, like, I thought, I feel like every language you learn that has kind of a different take on things, especially if they have really good documentation like Objective-C and Python, yeah. um, you, you learn something from each of those. And I think it's the same thing with Lisp. Mm -hmm. um, and I really like Lisp because it it works well with the way that I like to program. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's, um, you know, I think all these different languages, if you go learn, you know, Haskell or Rust or whatever, um, as long as they have really good documentation, a lot of them are really well thought out and you can learn from them. So mm -hmm. I don't think Lisp is different in that regard. Yeah. And, and why closure then? Because if you have seen... Um... Obviously, it started with Java and JVM, uh, but because you did Objective-C, you did Python, that means you, you are exposed to non-JVM languages anyway. Uh, then what brought you back onto JVM and Clojure, and, and why did you stick with Clojure? Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of the... So, I mean, I wanted to try it because I wanted to, like, what's a macro? Like, what does it do? Why is it why is it helpful? I mean, all mm -hmm. the Paul Graham essays are like, if you don't have macros, you're, like, using right. a blub language. And so that's what... Yeah, <laughs> that's what got me into it. But um, what kind of stuck, made me stay was that like, uh, I really like, even when I was working in Python, I wanted to do REPL driven development mm -hmm. um, and I wanted a functional style. And so I was doing a lot of the stuff in these other languages, but it wasn't necessarily well supported. And then when I got to Clojure, I'm like, oh, this is like, I really felt at home. It's like, this is the way I want to work. I want to do, I want to live code stuff. I want to do REPL driven development. I want to do... Um, I want to use pure functions. I want immutable data structures. Um, I want to, I remember in C++, um, you know, you create a class to represent some data. And I was like, well, you know, there's already a vector that lets you, hmm. you know, like there's these yeah, built-in data. data types. Yeah. And in Python, it's actually pretty idi idiomatic to use the built-in data types like lists and maps. And in Clojure, that's also the case where you have all these like you know, you just represent data with data and that you don't necessarily create new data types every time you want to mm -hmm. talk about something new. Mm -hmm. And so basically closure, uh, the way I wanted to program, I was kind of already going in that direction. 
And then uh, Clojure just makes all of those things easier. It gives a lot of support, built-in support for it. Hmm. A lot of the libraries that you use are also, um, will also help you program in that fashion. So it just, yeah, it worked well for me. So, so Adrian, what sort of domains? You said you were working for a game, a games uh, company. Uh, is that is that have you been generally involved in like games programming on the mobile, or what, what's the what's the what are the domains you've worked in? Yeah, so I mean, I don't I don't consider myself a games programmer, but that is a lot of my kind of professional experience. Is that mm. so? When I was in college, I started making Facebook games, and that was a startup that I worked for. And then I came to San Francisco and worked more on Facebook games. And then uh, while I was doing that, I picked up iPhone programming because it was like 2008 and, you know, there's a Steve Jobs presentation and it's like, oh, this looks, this looks really fun. So I started learning um, iOS development. And then I had a friend that I used to work with start a new game company on iOS. And so I went to work there. And so those are mobile games, kind of like, um, they're kind of like simulation style where like SimCity type um, games where you have like a zoo and people visit your zoo and then you buy animals, which gets more people to visit and you kind of um, decorate and build a big zoo as an example. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, nice. and that was all in Objective-C. And then when we started to do cross-platform games, it was in C++ or what we called uh, Objective-C++, which is kind of a monster. But... <laughs> yeah. Is this based on Objective-C or, or it's just um, your own? Because did you bring C++ concepts into Objective-C or, or writing some parts in C++ and writing some parts in Objective-C and then combining them together? Well, we, uh, we, we found this, when well, we were using this um, Objective-C library, to mm -hmm. for the game engine called Cocos 2D. Yeah. And then um, there's a C version called Cocos 2EX, but it's basically a one-to-one -one port of the Objective C version. So for memory management, you still do a lot of the Objective C stuff like um, retain release, auto release, yeah. the um, reference counting. Yeah. Arc. And um, yeah, so it's like a lot of a lot of those um, since it was a one-to-one -one translation into C. Mm. It uh, it had a lot of Objective C idioms, but it was in C plus plus. Okay. And sorry, Ray, you were you were saying something. I, I was just going to say about the yeah. games engine, but you've kind of answered it, so it's no problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, when you transition to closure, or when you move to closure work, um, are you still working on game side of it, or what? What, what is your uh, closure experience so far is is it on gaming is it on web development or i don't know mobile stuff with react native or, well, or everything I, <laughs> yeah what i started using it for was uh data processing so we have these games online and a lot of the game is powered by analytics and so hmm. um that was where it was like very directly uh, applicable was that you know closure is really good at data processing so you know, we collect all these data analytics and then I can use Clojure to uh, analyze the data and try to figure out um, how to look at metrics and how to update games. And then, um, so I guess the, uh, after around 2013, I started doing um, contracting 
Yep. So I used uh, Clojure and Clojure Script for contracting, and um, like, and then I've also been doing open source work with uh, Clojure. So mm. I've uh, started to. I mean, for contracting, you don't always get the choice. When I could choose Clojure, I would choose Clojure. When you can't, mm. you use um, whatever language that they um, were using. Mm. Um, so. Um, like some of the stuff that I've done in Clojure was uh, I worked on this really cool project called Kamigama, which mm-hmm. was a online was reimagining what like a digital comic would be, oh. um, and uh, it never quite gained enough traction to take off. But I thought, um, I mean, basically what they had was it was like a small inter- one small interactive panel, mm-hmm. and um, instead of having you know most comics you have multiple panels. Um, but you would have one panel and then to progress the story, you kind of interact with one panel. So it's like either a very um, like story-based game mm-hmm. where there's not much like, uh, you know, not much interaction where you're just kind of progressing the story and making simple decisions in the story um, is kind of one way to look at it. Mm. So it's not a comic reading uh, experience. It's more kind of an interactive gaming comic mixed thing yeah it's like an interactive story um, okay through you through like one frame that is you know telling mm. the story and is animated yeah and you've got some choices where you can take the story right um mm. so yeah some of them were more complex and some of them were more game-like and a lot of and some of them were more kind of just story driven where you kind of go to the next panel by interacting with different characters oh nice but is it all done in closure script or uh, that one is completely closure stack yeah it was um so there's a web server and there was a uh, closure script for the to run in the web browser okay so what um, what are the closure script things that that you've been using because if you started in almost 2013 i'm not sure what was the situation back then but i'm i'm guessing you picked up um the, the state of the art, so-called state of the art, closure script stuff now, but you know, with reframe and all the, all those things. So, uh, how was your experience with closure script? Because if I if I see your experience, you're mostly working on Java or iOS, like kind of backend sort of uh, work. Um, so, how did you feel picking up closure for the backend, and how did how how do you feel picking closure script for the for the frontend sort of work? So for the uh, well for the backend. Um, that was pretty familiar. Um, you kind of like I used uh, Django and Python, and hmm. you know it's not like it's the same thing, but there's a lot of uh, knowledge transfer between that and you know Composure and Ring. Yeah. But um, for Closure Script, I'd actually been doing. Um, I mean, I've done. I did web development before, and uh, at that time when I was doing web development, it was mostly in uh, jQuery. Mm-hmm. But even at that time, I was. Um, like I would basically have the data model and then I would have like an update UI function, which would go and based off the, take the data model and apply every single time you call it update UI, it would apply every single change to the DOM. So when React came around, it was like, oh, it does that, but it's more efficient and it has Mm -hmm. built-in support and there's all these libraries and it just does what I was doing, but better. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for ClojureScript, it was, it was um, after learning kind of some of the, you know, learning closure itself and getting over some of those hurdles. Um, the doing the web development felt pretty natural, and 
the other one, so at the time you were asking about the tech that there's, um, yeah. I was using Ohm, mm -hmm. not Ohm Next, but Ohm, it, like yeah, the yeah. original. Yeah. OG and, Ohm. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and uh, Closure Core Async. So yeah. um, there was a, and Core Async was uh, actually a really great fit because, you know, we're doing these comics which have a lot of asynchronous um, event handling as well as like the way uh, these were meant to be embedded. So you would have like a, um, you would have an iframe and that would, um, you and you needed to be able to like switch between comics. So since um, each of these comics were like JavaScript code, you wanted some sort of isolation between comics so that like, if you have a comic, you go through it and you load the next comic, you don't want any uh, residual state to kind of, mm, mm. you don't want like timers and stuff to be continuing yeah, yeah. to run. So like, you would have an iframe that would embed it and then you'd load another iframe to run the comic and then you'd have um and in some cases you would also have ads that would load asynchronously and then you would also have asynchronous events coming in from um user interaction from people like tapping on the comic itself yeah. so um core async was a huge um i mean it like handling all this asynchronous stuff would have been a nightmare with just callbacks, but with core async, it lets you do a lot of um, really kind of cleanly express all these asynchronous pieces that needed to fit together. Mm -hmm. So how did you how did you become how productive were you? I mean, because I would be just reading the comics, you know, after building the first mm -hmm. <laughs> first thing, just wasting my time just going through the comics myself. <laughs> so, oh yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, so like, I mean. Um, so at the time I was contracting and I was, uh, doing that part-time. So like mm -hmm. I was, uh, I was doing, I was picking projects and I was sp specifically picking them so that I could, um, basically work part-time and then part-time I wanted to work on this, uh, side project, which I've been kind of like working on since the, kind of, uh, in the background, kind of the whole time, which is like, um, the kind of like the long-term goal is I like working on programming for non-programmers mm -hmm. um, and that has many manifestations, but the most like kind of the biggest portion of that is uh, this UI library that I've been working on called membrane. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so that uh, most of the comic stuff was like one day a week for several years. Yeah. And so like, I would, it was actually a really great way to work because, you know, you come in on Monday and there's like a list of stuff that you need to like get done that day. And, and you both know done. you have limited time. So like they do a really good job making sure you're working on the things that they actually care about and they're well specified. Yeah. And then you like go in there and you try to like crank it out um, and you do it again the next week. <laughs> but that seems to be the biggest challenge in software development, right? Like identifying what exactly you need to work on and then, mm. you know, mm. uh, essentially bringing the requirements, you know, in a proper way. So... Um, so you built the comic thing in Ohm. Um, did you right. move to other other technologies like Reframe, Reagent? Because Ohm is kind of now, well, um, not in the top three right now, I would say. Right. So I never, um, yeah, I guess I never made it to, I mean, I've um, kind of as part of working on my own UI library, I've you know, I've read about all the different options um, for building user interfaces. 
I have my cheat sheet over here. That's what I'm looking at. But, right. Um, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. But I never, yeah, I never uh, seriously like had any serious projects in like um, Reframe or Hoplon or Reagent. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about this because you said you are passionate about uh, coding for non-coding people. Is is that right? Uh, is that the right way to put it? Or yeah, I don't know what the best term for it is, but basically like, like the, the no-code movement. <laughs> well, I I mean, I I definitely wouldn't call it no-code just because it's like um, basically it's like if you anybody should be able to make a simple desktop web or mobile app is kind of the goal. Mm. And um, kind of saying no code is like, I mean, I don't know what the right marketing thing is, but like, so for example, I think Excel is a way people can like be really, can get the computer to do what they want and be productive. Mm. Mm. And it's really flexible and general. Um, and there's a very, um, the learning curve is very gradual. So it's like, if you spend a weekend learning Excel, like you can, on Monday, you can be more productive. Yeah. So um, kind of more, uh I think we can make software like there's a lot of software development in my experience is just kind of like there's a lot of incidental stuff that has nothing to do with actually writing the software and that we can remove a lot of it. Mm. And um, so that's kind of what I'm passionate about trying to figure out is like, how can we just like remove this 90% of stuff that just like has nothing to do with the problem? Yeah. So basically, unit tests, I mean, which don't nobody writes, and documentation, which nobody writes, and <laughs> so we can we can remove all the unnecessary parts of software. <laughs> like who, who is documentation anyway? Um, but yeah, that's 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 kind of a challenging domain, right? I mean, there is there is, I think there have been like multiple uh, efforts are still ongoing to to bring, um, yeah, as you said, I think. It, Saying it code or no code doesn't make any sense. It's more about um, solving your problem uh, using software that you built uh, quickly without having this whole "oh, I need a, I need a developer to do this for me" sort of uh, situation. So right, but maybe it's a, a better. Maybe the question then is like, what what with Excel? You kind of like you're thinking about, um, you know, I mean, I. I guess with Excel, a lot of people are thinking about accounting or about um, planning or something like that. You know, those kind of like business type domains. I mean, you know, you can write recipes in there. You can do all kinds of shit in Excel. But essentially, I mean, I would say essentially it's planning and numbers, accounting. Um, I, I know Excel has got more capabilities than that, but those are the essential domains. Um, so what is it with this? If you're going to do like, an equivalent for Excel, you have to pick another domain which is approachable or which is well known. So, is that the idea that you kind of have some some game, some gaming kind of um, system or some 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 sort of minimal gaming system that you're addressing with this particular pro tool? Right. So, I mean, there's this kind of like a long term plan, but for so I think Excel, what it what it's really good at is that um, you can. Um, I mean, I think Excel, I mean, if you look at kind of technologies that people can get up to speed with and build, um, without a lot of experience, really interesting stuff, um, you like, look at Excel, it's like mutable data, data flow, pure functions, um, Excel has all of these things. So it's like, and these are really good for, um, 
kind of, and it's also incremental. So it's like a half, you know, if your Excel spreadsheet is like half working, it actually, you get like half the value compared to like, you know, a C program, if you're missing a semicolon, it doesn't do anything. Mm. Um, Immediate feedback as well is a killer. Right. So, and it, um, yeah. And so you can construct these pure, uh, you can have these pure data flows. Um, one thing that I think is missing is that you can't, uh, there's no good way that I know of to do abstraction, which I think would be, which I think is easy to add. Um, basically you just have, um, you can have your input cells as like the function parameters, and then you have one output cell, and then you can have as much stuff in between and, um, you can create a function from that. And, um, but it, but anyway, like, I think you can use Excel to create pure functions. And then um, one of the big missing pieces of Excel, well, I mean, from a general perspective is that um, there's no side effects. There's no, like, it doesn't interact with the world. So you can't send, um, so like, I, well, they have specific integrations with like email yeah, yeah. and databases. And, but, um, you know, I think you can, um, it's not good at like this side effects stuff. And so I think you want, so I think what you want is another tool that helps you with the kind of workflow composition um, piece that helps you deal with the side effects. Like um, an example of that is like if this and that or Zapier, where you kind of like, you know, you have uh, inputs to the system, you have data coming in, like emails and text messages and uh, user input and stuff from the mm. network. And then you, uh, you uh, transform that with pure functions, and then you have outputs like sending emails, text messages, writing stuff to the database, um, displaying stuff on screen. Uh, and so I think you, if you combine those two, you can basically make any program. Hmm. So how did you, uh, from, from this, this um, idea of making easy to solve your problems using software that you can build yourself, you know, which is, I think, uh, quote-unquote, no code, <laughs> or whatever that is that people are calling these days. Um, so is, is this the genesis for, for Membrane? Is, is this the one that, that you started working on um, towards this goal? And then maybe you can explain how Membrane came to be. Right. So um, basically what I, like the app that I, like I was doing these demos and I was doing it in Ohm with ClojureScript. And um, I, I felt like, I mean, this thing that had been kind of bugging me for a long time is that I feel like building user interfaces is way more difficult than it has to be. And then there's all this incidental complexity mm. and um, especially UI code has this like, uh, it's slow and brittle and uh, it's slow to build and it's brittle and that it's not composable. And it's like, if you target web and then you try to like take that to mobile, a lot of times you're using completely different tools, completely different stack. And there's all these issues with just like um, composition and flexibility and reuse. Um, and so, and the other part is I was trying to kind of build these like uh, you're writing programs that are dynamic and mm -hmm. it was just like, um, it was just a real challenge to try to build that using the UI libraries that were available. And, um, like, so for this, 
for the demos I was doing, I was doing the thing where you kind of like, you write your front end enclosure script. And then, you know, if you want to like talk to the file system, the database, send, uh, do networking, you would have to do that on the JVM. Um, or I was doing that on the JVM. And so you have this huge problem where you have to like send all the data back and forth across the network and you have to serialize everything. And it's, um, and that just adds a lot of complexity on top of already a hard problem. Yeah. Um, so I was really, um, so membrane is my attempt at like building the UI library that um, tries to simplify uh, building user interfaces. So the idea with membrane is that you can do all of this traditional server side stuff in the client device. Well, um, so no network chatting. Well, uh, with membrane, it's, I mean, it was really just trying to simplify user interface development and it's, um, kind of trying to get back to like, what is a user interface, even just trying to answer that question hmm. uh, okay, and kind of go uh, first principles. So, I mean, what I, what I started with was like, okay, I'm just gonna, uh, I'm going to get OpenGL hmm. and I'm going to have closure, like, and then I'm going to try to build everything, which is data and pure functions. What's that look like? Um, and that's kind of where I started. And since then, I've tried to like actually um, build out a lot of the concepts for like, okay, what is the user interface? How do you um, how do you build stuff with just data and pure functions? And um, kind of since I've been doing that for a while, it, it's a lot easier to look back on like these different options like Hoplon and uh, Fulcro and Helix and Reframe and Reagent and and, um, and say like, okay. Here's why I feel like those aren't um, simple enough. Like they're not using data. They don't have pure functions. Um, they um, the graphics and event models aren't pure and function functional. So, hmm. um, so how do you? So if I if uh, I'm trying to understand uh, what what membrane is. So it's it's essentially a way to declare or create UIs and, and then the actual UI um, code is platform specific. Is, is that a way uh, to understand it? So I can I can specify, um, I'd like to have a window with a button, blah, blah, blah. And then if I execute it for, for, for web, I see a different thing. If I see, um, I can execute the same code to, to have the same UI across different platforms. Is, is that a way to understand it? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, so like, um... Going back to kind of like what's the definite like what is a user interface? Yeah, um, it's basically um, what it kind of boils down to for most user interfaces is you have graphics, which is like you have a which displays the state of a program, and you have events, which um, you know mouse and keyboard from the user that um, gets interpreted by the user interface. Mm. And um, so the goal of the user interface is to display the state of the program, which I think we're pretty good at um, and then the user interface itself should just all it is is a pure function of uh, raw events like mouse and keyboard to user intentions so it's like you have a mouse click at 0.4455 and the intent is to add a new to do to your to-do list hmm. um, and so you have a pure function from the state of the program to the, the graphics should look like and then a pure function from the raw events to the user intents um, okay. Yeah, and so if you define your user interface like that, it's just a, it's just data, 
and you can basically uh, membrane has backends for all these different uh, platforms and platforms provide you know graphics and raw events so it's like you know java 2d has graphics and events and event handling there's uh, you can run the same user interface of the terminal you can do it with webgl uh, you can run on the iphone now um, so any basically any platform that has uh, raw events and uh, like 2d graphics membrane can you know you can write a backend so that your user interface will run on those backends so do you need to do the translation yourself or is it something you can just plug in membrane and then say generate the ui for let's say mac os for example how does it work in 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 practice <laughs> so if i want to start uh, let's say i, I want to build uh, let's forget about the back end you know i just want to build it as you said like a to do list you know like a cross platform one using membrane so how would the developer experience be compared to normal thing like i'm going to build uh, Swift UI, I'm going to build on Android using, I don't know, Kotlin, whatever Android has XML shit. And then, you know, for web, I'm going to draw my HTML, DOM, whatever. So how, how is the experience different? Like, why why would I pick Membrane that is going to solve this this pain of building cross-platform stuff? So for the... Um, so it looks, in some ways, it looks kind of similar to what you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, one of the big differences is that the um the primitives that you work with are um like you have shapes like squares and rectangles mm -hmm. and um you have and text and images and kind of like ways to draw those um so they're basically just 2d primitives yeah um and then you also um, with events one of the big differences is that the event handling in membrane is um it's based on return value. So like for most stuff, it's like on click, what happens in reframe or all of most similar uh, most similar libraries is that you will dispatch an event. Yeah. So it's like you receive the event and then immediately you start firing off side effects. Whereas in membrane, uh, you just return what the intent should be based off of the input. Okay. And, and, yeah. um, and since there are functions, you can kind of compose them. So it's like you can build complicated interfaces of around um, simpler, smaller interfaces. And uh, the other thing that you can do is like, like let's say you have a, um, you know, you have a button and um, you like, you tap on it and it's supposed to like increment a counter. Mm. Um, in like reframe, it's like, if you wanted to say which counter that was supposed to increment, you have to like pass in a callback because it's all based off side effects. Mm -hmm. where you have to receive a callback with membrane you can just uh modify the um the like the function itself uh, the mm -hmm. return value of the um, event function so basically you have the button and then you just modify its event function to um, um return which counter so it's a little bit hard to kind of explain without a code example but basically mm -hmm. um it's not based, you know, and a lot of these other ones, it's based off side effects, whereas in membrane, it's based off return values and kind of just functional composition. I'm thinking about like reframe now. What you do with reframe is you just say what the keyword is and, and that's that becomes a function dispatch on that particular event function. So it's not like you don't pass a function, just say this is, a this is the keyword 
that I'm going to dispatch. And that, that, that results eventually in the graph calling that function. But it's, it sounds similar to what you're talking about in some ways. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, there is some, like, in some, and a lot of times um, it looks very similar. Um, right. But where, but when you're trying to do, like, when you're trying to build tools around it or do generic processing mm. or do testing, that's when it really uh, starts to matter more. So, like, uh, there's a lot of, like, if you're just using data and pure functions, you know, you don't need a UI testing library. You just use a regular testing library. And I think a lot of the, um, so like one example that I like to reference is that for reframe, um, you can't have multiple, it's, you can't have like multiple applications running at the same time. Right. Um, and so, um, with the, if you kind of, um, and that's because these, all these things are side effect based. So it's like, you know, the event happens, the event gets dispatched and it's like, everything's already in motion. It's all connected. Um, it's too late to kind of like go back and add a add some context that says like okay this event is should be dispatched to um, this particular application instance. Whereas in membrane, you just modify the event function to be like okay all the events under this part of the tree um, now they have this qual like this context that says which application it should go to. Hmm. So how how is the because I'm trying to understand how do you compare this with, um, oh, maybe maybe uh, better <laughs> better question for me to understand this better is like, so the rendering is delegated to the platform itself, so you don't have any rendering code in Membrane. Is is that right? Yeah, it's a separate piece that you kind of like. So basically, you build your application and you say like, so you might say like, um, I have a label, yeah, and um, next to that is a rectangle with rounded corners mm -hmm. and then next to that there's like um an image mm -hmm. and so all of these things are just it's just data it's just like um there are mm. uh, records for each of those different um types the image the label and the shape yeah. um and um each platform provides its own draw function so there's like um so it you uh you can basically just like say take this data structure and if you want to draw using Java 2D, you just call the Java 2D draw function with that data. And if you want to draw it using WebGL, you just call the draw the WebGL draw function with that data. Yeah. And you know, um, there's now backends for like you can just draw stuff in terminal. Mm -hmm. um, you can fortunately there's like one graphics library called Skia that yeah. runs on several different platforms. So that um, just implementing one um, Implementing that one library kind of lets you run on several different platforms. Skia, um, the thing that uh, that Nikita is building, uh, it's from IntelliJ Skia, but I think I think Nikki is yeah, it's, it's, part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So Skia is the yeah. Well, Skia is the uh, graphics library that is used by Chrome and Android, and mm -hmm. Skija is like S K I J A. Yeah, is uh, Nikki's. Um, he wrote Java bindings for it. Ah, okay. So um, it's a, and uh, you can also, which you can also use from Clojure. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then he's going to do a Clojure version of it, I think, first part of this uh, Clojureist together thing, hmm. or he's thinking about it. I don't know. 
Well, uh, yeah. it looks like he's interested in building a UI framework on top of it, which mm. sounds really, mm. really cool. Yeah. So how, how does it compare with, um, I'm sure you might have looked into things like Flutter or, you know, this whole, um, because th there has been a lot of efforts to, you know, unifying, uh, having a common framework that you can use to build um, kind of a um, same experience or using the same code base, but able to build UIs for any platform we like, right? I mean, one of one of React the, is an obvious example as well. Actually, yeah, I mean, React exactly. Using React like Native, that. yeah, yeah. Well, using React Native, React and React Native, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So, how do you how do you see the what is your opinion on these kind of things? Because it seems like uh, at some point people have given up on native components, and then we have this monstrosities of you know fucking Electron applications everywhere, mm -hmm. not not respecting any of the platform's uh, you know behavior at all. Uh, and then on the other hand, things like Flutter and those things are coming up. So how do you see these things evolving and, and, and where do you put Membrane in this uh, in the spectrum? Yeah, so Membrane probably does too many things, but um, I mean, what? so like there's um, there's the state management, which like mm -hmm. um, is like similar, tries to solve a similar problem to like relay or reframe or... Um, reagent or fulcro and then there's the um kind of like the raw graphics and events part mm. um and uh like one thing that i th would say is different from like flutter is um that if you look a lot of these um there's a lot of functional ui libraries and most of them focus on state where which is um a you know where a lot of functional programming tends to really shine but yeah. they're all built on top of like these object oriented um um yeah they're all built on top of this like object oriented stuff so like for reframe it's built on top of the dom which is this like highly object oriented uh both graphics model and a highly ob object oriented event model which is mm -hmm. all based off side effects and then if you look at um like Flutter and React Native, you know, they're built on top of UIKit or Android stuff or um, Qt or GTK. All of this, um, all of the state management libraries are just built on top of this object-oriented stuff. And a lot of the issues that I think were, a lot of the issues that come from, you know, like UI programming, I think that we're running into today and kind of like starting to bump into as we build more complex apps comes from the object-oriented stuff underneath hmm. do you think it's because okay well maybe so you should just tell us why you think that is what what what's the where, where are we hitting the limits of of these like or or concepts because you know uh, instinctively i want to agree with you but i'd like you to kind of uh, reason it out a little bit yeah well uh i was just uh so today is i think it's the 10th anniversary of simple made easy the uh cheeky yeah, talk yeah. And um, basically, I mean, I think it's like, it's, it kind of just goes back to those things where you want to build applications out of sim dramatically simpler stuff. And um, what I think you can kind of see where you're bumping into those issues with like, especially with React, where it's like, um, you can't, like, if you have a testing library, you kind of almost need a React testing library. Sure. You can't just mm -hmm. use any testing library. I mean, one of the benefits you get from 
most closure code is that like if you have a library that works with data, you can reuse it anywhere. So you can reuse spec for all sorts of stuff. You can reuse mm -hmm. Meander and Spectre and all these data processing libraries in all sorts of different fields. Whereas with UI stuff, you tend to have like, okay, I have a I have reagent, and then to make that easier, I have reframe in it. Um, and on top of that, you have maybe some other component library. And then mm -hmm. if you have a database, it's like a UI database. And if you do event handling, it's UI handling. And so it's like you, it, all this stuff gets coupled together. Um, it's sort of specialized by the, the context rather than by the problem. Right. And, um, and it's just like, um, and it's hard to kind of do generic stuff. And like another example is, uh, so if you write a reframe component and you want to reuse that same component in Fulcro, that's mm. like, that's like nonsense. Like, um, yeah. people like that just, as far as I know, that just doesn't happen. Um, so even, even though they're both built on top of, uh, react, like, why can't you reuse this? Like, why can't I just take a UI component from this other thing and reuse it? Um, with membrane, you can actually, um, every membrane component, like there's, um, so like, I would say that the reframe components kind of like complex the state management with like the graphics and events. Mm -hmm. And, um, so for each of like, uh, CLJFX and, um, reframe and fulcro, you can take a membrane component and like convert it. With one function, you can convert any membrane component into a fulcrum component. And there's another function that will convert any membrane component into a reframe component. And I think that's that's kind of what we want is like you define a UI component. And uh, since it's a pure function, you just like reuse it. So it's like somebody wrote a date picker and uh, I want to use it. I don't really care. Like if I don't, I think it's a big problem that like, oh, they wrote it in reframe. And now I can't use it. I have to like write my own now. Yeah. So one of the things, yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a great point because, um, you know, these things like date pickers are, are very generic, but, uh, I think these, uh, react hooks are meant to try and solve that. Um, so you can start to import like react components into the closure script world. Is it is it similar in some ways the membrane approach to? Cause, I mean, you could argue that hooks are a kind of like functional version of um, component definitions. Well, I mean, I mean, I think I would not consider. I I think React hooks are probably the wrong direction, and the reason for that is, um, I mean, basically you want to build components out of data and pure functions, mm -hmm. and so. And fundamentally, like subscriptions and React hooks are based off of side effects. Like um, I was, uh, like there's a, I was watching a talk about a brand new, or it's a, it's a relatively new um, UI framework, and they're like, oh yeah, it's a function, but you can't, but you, you shouldn't call it. Like you don't call it. You know, you you pass it to React, and eventually somebody else calls it. Hmm, and right, like it's a function. It's like, what else are you gonna do with it? So like hmm. um, every like every membrane component is just a pure function. So you can call it with whatever data you want. You don't have to set up any context and you get back data, which is just like, um, which is basically just the, the event function and the graphics function. So you like, um, 
you you get back a view which you can like you can write to disk you can draw it in a number of ways you can draw it to an image you can draw it to um, any of the other um, graphics contexts that are available um, and then you can also um, immediately say like okay what is um what's going to happen or you can ask for what are the intents if i click at mouse position 44 hmm. so i create a component i pass it in the data that and it returns a view and i can say like okay i can basically just click everywhere and see what happens at each mouse point or i can uh type in every key stroke and get back all of the events or all the intents that would be returned um, um if you know the user were to be typing or clicking yeah. on that component so you you will build or, or the idea is that you know uh, when you're using membrane you you define declare the ui in membrane as components and then you can um, essentially translate it into any of the frameworks that i'm using or any of the platforms that i'm using Right, I, I I can think of it like okay, now now I want to build a reframe application, but I can just reuse all the membrane components that I have. Then I just bring them in, um, and then you know uh, build build the thing. So how um, how complex it is to build complex UIs, or <laughs> is it simple? Is it easy? <laughs> so how how does it work in in terms of building building like you know full full frame uh, you know full fledged um, web application or a desktop application uh, with lots of you know buttons and whatnot and everything that you see usually. Yeah, so I mean, I've been focusing mostly on um, desktop just mm -hmm. because um, that's kind of the problem space I'm interested in. And I mean, I know I've been kind of like beating up on Reframe and Reagent and Fulcro, but they're they're actually like if you want to build a web app application, they they do make it really easy and they are really good at what they do. Yeah, um, but. Uh, so I've been, um, so like the the biggest application that I'm working on and is a work in progress is uh, basically I just want to be able to drag and drop UI components. Basically, I want interface builder meets Figma. Mm -hmm. You can kind of, um, you know, you have direct manipulation, uh, drag and drop components, and kind of quickly throw together a user interface, um, and. Uh, yeah, that was what I was trying to originally build and decided that um, it was really difficult to build using kind of the um, the tools that were available for building yeah. user interfaces. So in, in the journey of, because this is all uh, obviously started based on your, um, your idea of um, making it easy to build software without you know too much effort and then that can run anywhere so the, I, I would consider this like a first step right i mean because the building the ui i think we have enough tools to you know simulate at least building a complex ui how it is going to look like in different platforms for example um but there is still part of like the business logic part and quote unquote business logic or what should happen and and and, the, and, and as you as you pointed out like the whole um, side effecty thing, like where am I going to store the data, for example, and where I'm going to read the data from. So how is your vision uh, from membrane to that point? Uh, how, how do you want to take it to th that level? I is the membrane first step or is membrane, you know, uh, kind of a critical part of that one? Yeah, so I mean, I think um, like 
kind of coding for non-coders is a big problem. And the way you solve big problems is you break it up into smaller problems. And um, there's a lot of, um, like one of the smaller problems I think is uh, uh, just like, I wanted to build, I want to be like, if you're actually making a dynamic user interface um, in itself, then like, um, you, yeah, you want to build, like you don't know what people are going to build. So you, it needs to be dynamic. And I was having trouble building those, um, building those user interfaces with the tools that were available. Mm. And um, I, I want to basically, the formula in my mind is you have like something like Excel for building, um, for data processing, uh, creating pure functions. And then you have something like, um, well, I haven't mentioned uh, something like, I don't know if you've played the game Factorio. No, I don't know it. No. Okay. Um, but basically something that helps you build the side effect part, like you, you can build workflows, um, kind of like Zapier or if this and that with a little bit more flexibility yeah. um, for the side effects. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you can also build a user interface on top of that, you can, that's kind of like, you can kind of build anything from those parts. And also the, the two pieces, like the Excel, like portion and the factorio like portion um i need to build those user interfaces so hmm. having a tool that makes it easier to build those user interfaces is also part of the um part of solving the problem yeah why did you pick closure for this given that you have experience with you know so many other languages <laughs> why closure yeah i mean i think closure is actually i mean um Closure, I mean, one of the things from Simple Made Easy is that like um, we can build programs using simpler stuff. And, you know, people have been building databases and data processing and um, they've, um, you know, there's all these different things that all these different programs and different types of programs and all sorts of different domains and banking software that Closure has been able to build things using simple, um, simpler underlying pieces. Um, I don't see why we can't do that for user interfaces. Mm. And mm. Um, I've really gotten a lot of benefits from using Clojure because it supports, uh, I mean, especially for building user interfaces, having the live, um, um, the REPL-driven develop, development with live coding is really useful. And uh, just by using, um, you know, the just by using the built-in Clojure stuff, like you have event processing, but if you want to add more events, you know, Clojure makes it easy to have an open data model. Mm. And, um, you know, you have, uh, you represent your views as data and it's like, okay, it makes it easy to be like, okay, I want it to run on the iPhone or in terminal or on desktop or in uh, WebGL. And um, so, and it also makes uh, immutable data and pure functions idiomatic. So it's like, um, is a long-term project being able to like write some code that is really like really stable mm. has been really helpful that you can, you know, I write this, uh, part of the code and, um, I can reuse it later and it's, uh, I can come back, you know, like one or two years later, it kind of still just works. Mm. And, um, mm. so yeah, that's a really yeah. good, that's a really great point actually. Yeah. One of the things, just just to clear up though, so you're saying that 
it kind of like skated past me a little bit. But um, what you're saying is we we should give up on the DOM. Is that right? We should we should uh, we should stop using the DOM and we should just use other things to build UIs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the one one caveat is that like if you're targeting the web, you need to spit out. You you probably need to spit out HTML stuff, but um, we should absolutely not be creating user interfaces like with those primitives. Like, um, like I don't. I've been doing web development for a long time, and like I still don't feel like I know what a div is. I just know that they're everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, I agree. <laughs> it's like a div. Yeah, it's just something I put in there so I can call my reframe app. You know, <laughs> right? Or just style it. You know. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And but, if you uh, look at, does, yeah, I agree you with you. At, I mean, it always seems very frustrating to me to have these like things like in the DOM rather than. You know, I think people have been moving a little bit more recently, even even the bigger companies towards. Um, canvas and uh, things like this because they can't get the efficiencies from the dom and it always felt a little bit like i mean people say this uh, people said it a long time that you know the dom was not made for applications it was made for text it was, it's called the document object model not the application object model um and it's got object model in it as well which is your point you know so <laughs> so we should have like an applicate you know maybe it's a functional, functional model one. fm you know yeah rather than like document object model maybe like you say you can have documents around the side of it or to the left of it or use you know using hypertext it's fine you know you can link to things you're not thinking about those things because they're nice and simple but um but what you're saying is we should use the 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 simpler parts of the of the web stack rather than this dom stuff right so i mean i think like um, I mean, there's already projects that do this today, like React Native Web and React Primitives. But basically, just to, like if you look at design tools, there's almost, I don't think I've ever seen, I mean, I'm not a designer, so maybe it exists, but I've never seen a div tool. <laughs> what you see yeah. is like, you have shapes, you have text, you have images, um, you have like gradients and stuff, but there's no div. Um, mm. And so what we should do is be defining our user interfaces in terms of these primitives, like shapes, text, mm. images. And, um, but it's okay to like, so like the browser requires like HTML, CSS and JavaScript, but in a lot of people, um, are moving like for JavaScript, for example, like people aren't writing the JavaScript directly. They're either minifying it if they're writing JavaScript or they're using TypeScript or ClojureScript and it's spitting out, um, you know, more performant, um, smaller payloads. Uh, versions of JavaScript that do the same thing, and we can do that with um, with our graphics too. So you can like write text and images and um, shapes, and we could, you know, you can build a compiler that will like spit out HTML that's uh, smaller payloads, better performance, and uh, is also not tied to like uh, the web platform. And, and why did you pick WebGL though? Because I was wondering. Because if you are drawing it in a, in a browser, technically you can use SVG or, you know, um, that that. Because if, if it is just shapes and images anyway, then why WebGL? Why not SVG or or is it just another um, backend? Yeah, it's just another backend. So there's actually there's a backend that will spit out or that will draw to open uh, 
WebGL contacts. Yep. But there's also another backend that uses, um, there's a library called VDOM, mm -hmm. which is just the virtual DOM part of, um, like it's kind of like just the virtual DOM part of React. It doesn't have any of the state management stuff. Yep, yep. And so there's another backend that was like actually spit out HTML um, virtual DOM, which VDOM will um, um, reconcile with the underlying DOM. Oh, okay. And, and if you wanted to build a SVG backend, you can just, um, all you need to do is basically provide implementations for like, here's how you draw a shape, here's how you draw an image, here's how you do uh, text. Oh, okay. Isn't there, an, there's another standard coming on apart from WebGL, isn't there? Um, like a super a success at a WebGL, and I can't remember its name right now, but maybe you know it, Adrian. Um, yeah, I'm not, I don't know what that. That is. It's because WebGL is like one of these things which is, you know, not performing very well, and it's it's uh, it doesn't adapt very well to the uh, to the hardware. So is it doing... the Web Web GPU? Web GPU, that's it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I just googled for it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is a this is a live uh, podcast, so you know. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we have access to the information. Yeah, yeah it seems GPU. to be web web GPU thingy. Okay, that 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 sounds like a really weird name for this shit. What is web GPU? Anywho, um, so well, obviously, I think you know that there is a biggest question that I'm interested in. So, which editor do you use? Do you use Emacs or some other <laughs> shit? Yeah, I use uh, Emacs. Fuck, that makes sense. Okay. I mean, look, all these all these awesome ideas. I mean, I, I I I was thinking, okay, I've been talking to this person for one hour already, and this seems to be like a really good ideas. You know, he must be an Emacs person. You know, that's uh it's kind of a you know, given. <laughs> awesome. But so, are you so in love with it? Though, there is a, are you in love with it, or do you want to render it in a different way? <laughs> yeah, I've been well, like. Uh, I want to be able to embed a text editor, and I've been trying really hard to figure out how to embed Emacs so I can just use it <laughs> everywhere. So the, I, all I need to do is just draw a shape in membrane and then just you know embed Emacs into that one, and then that becomes like a next generation web, <laughs> next generation editor. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So there is a membrane.el eventually. There <laughs> will be. Because I think Emacs has this weird UX or UI component, right? You can you can define a button and all the stuff, the configuration and everything. And so I'm, I'm guessing somebody needs to build a backend for membrane or the you know interpretation for membrane, so I can write the same UI and then I'm going to render it inside Emacs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I'd love to be able to just uh, I mean, uh, Emacs unfortunately I think is very tied to the terminal. I'd love to just have it um, you know spit out kind of the you know what should be displayed so that you can just kind of like run it anywhere but mm. uh, haven't quite figured it out yeah i mean i think what you're saying is it's a piece of shit but okay, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's just my rough translation <laughs> <laughs> so okay so a couple of Moving things <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, we already established Emacs, you know, uh, is the reason why you came up with this, you know, better ideas and everything. Right? It's yeah. not just exactly. because you're working. Yeah. I mean, the, the, yeah. that's, that's no, the whole idea. I've got to say, these do sound like really good ideas and uh, very, it's very fundamental. And 
Yeah, I like it a lot. It's I think it's uh so what stage are you kind of at in terms of this uh tooling, Adrian? You know, where you're kind of like still in the sort of build out phase of the the fundamental framework, then you'll eventually get to these other pieces, or you know, are you getting close to prime time or you know, in other words, can we pick start picking up and working with it now, or are you still kind <laughs> of like just working through some of the rough edges or fundamental concepts even i don't know yeah i mean you could pick it up and start so i think um for desktop and for terminal uis uh since there's not a lot of good alternatives i mean clj effects is is also pretty good mm. um but if you want to build desktop apps you know there's nothing quite like reframe and fulcro um and helix and some of the other options on the web no, so you um, mean, yeah, so web, I, yeah. Yeah, so the web has like really great options if you're writing closure or closure script. Yeah. Um, and so it's not really going to compete there. It's not something that I'm focusing, I'm, I'm deliberately not focusing on the web because there are such good options already existing. Mm. But for desktop and terminal UIs, you can kind of pick it up. And I think it is a really good option. Um, the I think just building another UI library is not, I, I don't think uh, that's a good reason to. Um, I mean, I think there is a lot of cool stuff about membrane and that you can, uh, you know, it can access all these different platforms and that, you know, there's uh, the functional event stuff and the, the data-driven views. But like, um, I don't think that's quite enough to like pick up this kind of weird UI library. <laughs> and so what I'm, there's still some like, so I'm still working on the features that would make it kind of interesting for their, you know, picking up this weird new UI library. And I think, um, the like the next step is really this um basically drag and drop ui builder which um it, i think um i don't know if you've seen um red victor's drawing sure. dynamic visualizations mm -hmm. so it's it's meant to be kind of um one of these dark manipulation things where it's like um you can build really dynamic stuff and um that's uh, which is also one of the reasons I think Closure excels here is because like you can just call a val. So basically, um, you draw all the UI components, and then to get the um, to get the value, you just eval the like basically you're you're kind of writing code through direct manipulation, mm. and then you eval the code that you um, produced via direct manipulation, and um, so I think that's kind of like the next big step where it's actually really interesting, where it would actually be really interesting for people to start using is like, okay, I want to build like an internal tool. It's going to have some text boxes and some buttons and some check boxes, and I can just like drag everything in place. And then I have, um, and that's how I build the graphical part of the UI. And then I have the business logic somewhere else. So, so right now, if I if I use Membrane, I, I'll mostly use it for defining the UI and then the business logic or whatever the domain uh, related things. I, I'll just build it in one of the frameworks that I'm using, or depending on the platform that I choose, uh, I just build it there. Right. Right. So, like, I do have. Um, so there are the three different. There are the different pieces of Membrane, and so the state management is separate from the other stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I do have um, bindings for. Uh, reframe and full grow, um, in addition to kind of a state management library that member provides. Um, and I mean, the intentionally that 
part of the um, library is kind of minimal because everything's just data and pure functions. So rather than using a UI specific state management library, you just use state management. Like you just use regular closure code. Yeah. Um, because it's just data and functions. So it's like you don't need a UI specific one. You may need some like helper functions, but you can basically, you know, you don't have to use a UI specific one. If you have another state management library that you're using for something else, you can use it here too. Because mm. it's all, you know, it's just all data. Okay. So the other thing that's like that you've been working on, and we were talking about this on the Apropos uh, show, was um, the Graal VM thing with uh, Bork, dude, Michael Borkent. Um, uh, do you just want to quickly like review, give a kind of like review of that for, uh, for the people who didn't see it on Apropos? The, the two or three people. I mean, I'm sure most of our audience have seen that one, but you never know. <laughs> <laughs> there could be some heathens me. that are only deaf. And <laughs> yeah, that's that's that that'll be me. So okay. <laughs> yeah. So the um, so there's a project called GraalVM, and it has a tool called Native Image. And what that does is you can take uh, JVM bytecode and you can compile it to assembly um, for multiple platforms. And um, since Clojure runs on the JVM and spits out bytecode, you can compile Clojure to all the to assembly for these different platforms. And one of the platforms that you can target is um, iOS. So um, I think that's like, fairly recent, though, isn't it? I think that was the interesting part that it's that's a fairly recent target. If I'm not wrong, it's kind of hard to say because um, they like. The only way to get access to the information is you have to really be following closely this GraalVM project. Right. And there's all these different configuration uh, parameters that you need and like getting access to like, it's hard to tell how new it is versus like how much like, you know, part of it has just been like, you know, Mikhail Bork dude has uh, done a bunch of work with GraalVM to make Clojure work. And the Clojure core team has actually supported that and added new features to Clojure to make that easier. And um with uh, you like if you're going to do a UI library and work with something that runs on iOS, you need access to um, the native platform. So you need to really like talk to the file system and the graphics. Mm -hmm. And uh, Chris Nuremberger has a library called DType Next mm -hmm. that makes that part easier. So there's like there's the documentation, there's the community information, there's the um, you know like the grunge work of like. I don't, I don't know what changes. The, so with uh, GraalVM, you can't have, you, there's no reflection or you need um, configuration. And so the core closure team has like done extra work to make that, um, I don't know, work better under GraalVM compilation. So there's a bunch of little pieces that are all I coming thought reflection to, did work. It was just the generation of classes that didn't work. So you can't eval, but you can reflect. You can... Um, you can reflect, but it requires extra configuration. Right. And in okay. general, you kind of just want to avoid that. So sure. for the most part, you just want to type into everything. Um, but yeah, I can't remember what was exactly added to was like closure. There's some update that made that better. Um, yeah, I yeah, seem so to remember it as well, but I can't remember exactly what it was. Some 1.10 release 
110 2 or 110.3. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. So so the, the the big news anyway is that you can now run closure, not just closure script on the iPhone. Mm. Right. And you can you build a native application and uh it's also using Psi, you can have a REPL, so you can kind mm. of live code live code your iOS app. Ooh. Um and there's also um this hasn't been uh we haven't done the work on the closure side, but the GraalVM can also target Android. So um, it should be possible to do all the same, to have the same stuff where you can also yeah. build Android apps. Um, but there's still some work to be done there. I mean, in theory, that should be easier because essentially, you know, that is a more, it's a more proximate target to the JVM. In theory. Yeah, <laughs> yeah in theory. <laughs> You leave that one as an exercise to the readers because it's so trivial, you know? It's the, it's the iOS one, which is exciting because it's like, whoa. <laughs> but Membrane also uses this technology, right? I mean, the using GraalVM native image to to render app in iOS thingy. Or is yeah, it a different so, backend? Um, yeah. So you can build, um, I mean, it compiles to assembly, but you still need the UI. Mm. And um, Membrane has it now has an iOS backend. So it's like if you, it's kind of fun. Like I have the to do MVC that I use to test. And, uh, you know, the same one that runs the desktop, you can just run on the mobile app. Oh. Uh, it doesn't, it's not quite as good because it's like the checkboxes are really tiny, but like, <laughs> um, yeah, you can still, um, it's the same UI. And you tell all you need to do is, uh, be able to draw shapes, text, and images, and forward event like tap events, and it's like okay, membrane's ready to go. Yeah, one of the things that you did with the when you were, were on the apropos, you did some live coding where you had the game of life up on the phone, and then you could like dynamically change the color of the um, of the skaters, the skaters, um, the um, what are they called the cells. The things which go across the uh, ah, are they not called the not oh, called gliders? The gliders, not the skaters. <laughs> the gliders. <laughs> <laughs> the gliders. Yeah. Which was really, which is really a great demo, I think, of how you can have this live coding experience. You know. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've I've been sold on live coding. I feel like that's uh, it's how I want to program. I've tried to like, you know. I like learning new languages and now it's hard because uh, a lot of languages don't have good REPL support. So it's mm. like, <laughs> I want to learn, I want to try like Go or Haskell or Rust, but it's like, you know, as soon as I start programming and I don't have the REPL, I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You have to like wait yeah. five minutes before you get an answer about whether it's working or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just another thing, just sorry, VJ, just one more thing on this is that, if I'm not wrong, um, the other, the sort of breaking news as well, not not for this show, but I, I noticed that um, that Mikael was talking about it recently, was that as part of this work of using like D-type Next and stuff like this, you're also trying to look at building like a foreign function interface to C libraries um, from Clojure as well. Um, so maybe you could, we could talk about that for a few minutes as well. Yeah. So like um what I think is really interesting, I mean, there's a ton of really good C libraries that are available. Um, and so I've kind of started wrapping some of them. Like uh 
So on desktop, you need I use GLFW to do to create the windows. Um, I use Skia, which is a has a C. Well, it's a C plus plus, but it, you can call it from C um, to do the graphics. Um, I have a wrapper library for uh, Chromium embedded framework, so you can kind of programmatically control Chrome. Mm. And uh, a lot of these C libraries have really, they actually have fairly functional, like they fairly functional interfaces. Mm. Like um, sometimes there's Java libraries that will wrap these C libraries, but most of the time they just kind of make it worse. And so if you can just call the C functions, it's often better <laughs> than using the Java library that wraps it. Um, and so you can do that today already with dtype next, but the kind of the new the new stuff that I think you were mentioning is that um, if you can do that, um, if you can dynamically load share libraries from Babashka, mm. it gives you access to like, basically you can have this small binary for Babashka and then you can um, access like a bunch of uh, C libraries and you can also compile um, job or closure libraries and use those dynamically and ship those separately from Babashka itself. Mm. Um, and so one of the kind of selfish goals for that is I'd like to, I think it'd be really cool if you could script user interfaces with Babashka and membrane. Mm. So um, if you can dynamically load membrane and then just, uh, you could just create, uh, make it easy to script a user interface that like, you know, shows a little window and then you can like, Hit a button that says profile and it'll show these like flame graphs or whatever you're doing mm. or um you know if you wanted to run tests and you wanted something a better user interface than like the terminal ui you can just like you know write a babashka script that uh shows you all your tests and then like gives you a little user interface to use that more efficiently nice. mm. yeah it's good stuff yeah it's exciting yeah so i i think I just have like a, I think two questions uh, to to I think we are wow uh, almost one and a half hour, nice. I think uh, it's it's always a good thing when when we can't keep track of time. <laughs> that means it's it's stuff is so good that we are now we're we're now you know fully immersed into the thing. So there are a couple of things. One is that um, so how can people contribute to membrane? Uh, and the second one is I see that. The amount of C code in Membrane is more than Closure code. So what is happening there? Is it really a Closure project or is it a C project? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what is C doing there or C, C++? Yeah, I think um, it's so it is a Closure project. And I think the reason for that is that the Closure code does a lot more per line than C code. Mm. <laughs> so even yeah. though Closure is doing all of the work, uh, yeah. you know, C takes up a similar amount of code, even though it's not uh, doing a whole lot. Yeah. And um, so for membrane, like I still kind of consider it in the design phase. Yeah. So there's a um, series of blog posts that kind of try to cover the design. And um, so if I'd really love to hear what people think, if they think it's crazy or if they think it's bad or if they think it's good or they have other suggestions, I'm really open to that. Yeah. Um, it, I'd, uh, if people want to build desktop or terminal UIs, I'd love to help make that work for you. So if it's, uh, I'm on the Clojure and Slack, or if you file an issue, I'm pretty, uh, pretty available to kind of help iron out any issues that you might run into. And mm -hmm. I'd love to kind of get feedback there. And um, 
Yeah. I mean, uh, mostly just because uh, there's not a lot of, um, I mean, I think a lot of the functional UI programming has been kind of focused on FRP, yeah, which is basically yeah. like you're building, it's basically you're building a functional UI library on top of some OO library. Hmm. And that's where I think why FRP is um, really pervasive is because like everybody's building on top of these OO stuff. And so it's like, how do you deal with that? Um, I, I had trouble finding other um, other things to look at and other references that were kind of like starting lower down in the stack saying like, what is the interface? What are the primitives? What's the data look like? What's, should, uh, what's a functional event model look like? Mm. Um, I think the Hoplon is meant to be a bit more like that. You know, when we were talking to Misha, um, he explained it much more like that. But it wasn't cross-platform, that's for sure, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some, there are some really, like, I think Swift UI has a lot of really cool ideas. Mm, yeah. Um, I was recently reading through uh, VRAC, V-R-A-C. Yeah. Um, and that looks really interesting. And then um, there's another one. I don't know. There's a, yeah, there's other interesting stuff that's happening, so. So it's, it's, it's um you know, it's more like a, a sparring kind of discussion that you want to have to, to to think about ideas together. And then, because as you said, I think it's, um, I can see that you are, you're approaching this from first principles, like looking at, you know, what UI should be, you know, FRP became a big thing when Elm and other things showed up. And then now, now we have React and all those things. Um, I think it's, it, it's completely, uh, or at least I, I, I understand the point of view that we had this uh, baggage of uh, overdriven frameworks everywhere, and you cannot, you know, throw them away completely. So we keep building on top of that one, and nobody was rethinking from the bottom up using functional principles. Mm -hmm. So I can, I you know, I can see a lot of value in that. I think you know that because then it's going to be functions all the way down. You know, it's like turtles all the way down level. <laughs> so that, that right. that's really awesome. Yeah. And I think, um, so Tonsky or Nikita Prokopov um, recently got funding to build, I think he's, his intention is to build a UI framework. Yeah. And I think that's really exciting. And so the other thing that I would say is like, if you're interested in building a UI library, um, um, I, you know, I'm happy to like, I mean, I I'm happy to like bounce ideas off of and, um, I want more libraries and I want more options that are kind of like functional up and down. Mm, and mm. the uh, and I think if you are interested in doing that, like the design space is huge. Mm. Like there's a lot of trade-offs that I made that I try to document in the design blog post. But I think you can, there's a lot of other trade-offs that you can make that are, you know, different and kind of unexplored and interesting mm. that I didn't, you know, I didn't take the time to do. So yeah. um, if you're interested in, you know, exploring this design space, um, I'm happy to answer like, it's like, oh, why didn't you do that? You can ask me and I can just tell you like, oh, that's, I just didn't think of it or, hmm. um, <laughs> awesome. you know. Oh, there, there's sort of devils and detail of that one rather than, uh, you, so you thought about it, but you just didn't go that way because of reasons, whereas, uh, yeah. So you want to try and f help. Yeah, I guess what you're you're open to challenges, so maybe to fill out your own kind of like justifications for what you're doing. 
um, and maybe it's like changing your mind, perhaps if, if if people give you good enough rationales. But then there's other things which are like you know maybe you've thought about things that other people haven't thought about because you've been in the space a bit longer, and you could help to educate them about the options as well. Yeah, awesome. Sounds good. So I think we'll. Um... I think on that I ha- on that happy note of uh, you know people rethinking the UI from from bottom up and uh, on you know, that uh, bombshell, VJ, come on, it has to be. <laughs> well, it has to be a bombshell. We're re- rethinking the UI from top to bottom. That's a bombshell. Yes. Come on. this is this is this is nuclear level stuff. Yes, I agree. <laughs> it's not even normal bombshell anymore. <laughs> so, it's the neutron bomb. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> on that one and you know obviously you know all the good ideas come from emacs so you know on that <laughs> on that bigger bombshell oh my God. <laughs> is that still a bombshell uh, yeah i think so <laughs> it's still blowing my mind that we're getting guests coming on fucking talking about emacs yeah <laughs> it's well that i think in the, after, and after i'm still letting you talk about it as well you know? after <laughs> After 7,000 episodes, it's still going to be Emacs, man. I mean, there's still going to be Emacs there, you know. It was there before Big Bang. It is going to be there after heat death of the universe. So. In the beginning, there was Emacs, and then there will be Emacs. I think it might be the cause of the fucking heat death of the universe. <laughs> well, if it was the cause of the Big Bang, it will be the cause of heat death. That's okay. <laughs> Anywho, and and thanks a lot, Adrian, for joining us and you know taking us through this um, journey of um, you know UI stuff. And I think, as I said, this is the, most of the time people are building on the existing things, which kind of limit or maybe even you know we we get into the narrow idea of uh, what is available and then mm-hmm. not able to make a leap. And and I think um, as you explained very well that rethinking it from the from the ground up might lead us you know uh, delivering better experiences you know better ways to build software and finally you know i can stop writing code and then <laughs> <that's> the, <laughs> i mean there's a lot of people praying for me to stop writing code but you know yes they're like please stop writing code now. <laughs> we can't handle your shit anymore your dog is definitely praying for it <laughs> yes <laughs> take me on a walk stop that bullshit exactly with the computer. yeah anyway um thanks a lot adrian thanks for joining and, and sharing this and i'm pretty sure people will um think with you and uh, you know as you mentioned there'll be more people think about these fundamental ideas rather than just building you know turd or turd again with object-oriented stuff so yeah thanks for having me yeah i think it's yeah no it's been great i mean i think that you know, your challenge to this kind of uh, space is really very timely. Yeah, it's good. Sweet. <laughs> Thank you. And that's it from us. Thank you for listening to this episode of DefN. And the awesome vegetarian music or the track is Melon Hamburger by Pizzeri. And the show's audio is mixed by Walter Dullert. I'm pretty sure I butchered his name. Um, maybe you should insert your own name here, Dullert. Wow, sir. If you'd like to support us, uh, please do check out our Patreon page and you can show your appreciation to all the hard work or the lack of hard work that we're doing. And um, you can also catch up with uh, either Ray with me for some unexplainable reason. Uh, you want to interact with us, then uh, do check us out on Slack, Closure and Slack or Closureverse or on Zulip or just at us at Defen Podcast on Twitter. 
enjoy your day and see you in the next episode. Thank you.